in this section I want to address what happens after you have repented (coughs) and after you have forgiven others of their sins against you and the enemy stands as the proverbial uh, climber of the glass tower in the rainstorm. What do you do with the enemy? Now that you have him for the first time in the person's existence, you have the enemy in a state of trespass without authority. What do you do with him? (coughs) Well, first let's understand, you have the right to judge him. And then you have the right to decree what happens to him, to it. And then the angels who are given charge may be commanded to carry out the instructions regarding your judgments of angels. Whatever you judge them, uh, the angels will carry out that judgment. So before we talk about what are the sanctions that are available, let's understand the very mechanism of judging angels. That, is, that begins with uh, the issue of your authority. Let me read you this from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. By the way, these things were always in the Bible, you know. I didn't put them in suddenly. He was talking about judging matters, so the context is appropriate. Judging matters in the church, among the saints. He says, dare any of you, verse 1, 1 Corinthians 6, dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge in the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? There it is in verse 3. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are esteemed, who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say that to your shame. Now he's talking about judging things in this life. Now, all the things he says about judging are in this life. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world in this life? Do you not know that the saints will, can judge even great matters, let alone the least of matters Do you, in this world, in this life? Do you not know that you shall judge angels? 
in this life. Tell me this, when in the, according to the scriptures, when will you judge angels? In the next life? No, who judges angels? Who finally sends angels to their destruction in the life to come? That's a judgment from the great white throne where the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The Lord judges the angels then. But He judges matters, it judges, it judges the, the saints judge each other, they judge matters, they judge the world in this life. The prohibition is not against judgments, the prohibition is against is prejudiced, unrighteous judgments. You'll recall when Jesus said, judge not that ye be, that you be not judged. His admonition was regarding false judgments, impaired judgments. He said, remove the, the log from your own eye. Im- remove the impediment that distorts judgment from your own mind before you judge another. He's not saying not to judge, clearly, because here we have been given authority by God to set things in order in the world. We certainly have been given authority by God to set order in the house of God. Paul left Timothy in Macedonia and Titus in Crete with this instruction to set in order the things that are lacking and to appoint elders in every city. We're called to judge. One of the elementary doctrines is eternal judgment. That's not about the great white throne of judgment, that's how we judge matters in a fundamental and elemental way. We judge matters from an eternal point of view, not from a temporal point of view and certainly not from a human prejudiced point of view. If we can't judge anyone, then what exactly is the instruction to hand a certain one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. When do you ever get to that? Why even give an instruction that you cannot carry out? You see, it's about the quality of your judgment. When Christ is seated in you and you are seated in Christ, in other words, when His presence is in you, and that's what Paul said, when I am with you in spirit, when I, you, you take up this matter, and this was actually said in, in uh, 1 Corinthians just before where we are reading, where he instructs them to hand the man over to Satan, which man was living with his father's wife. That's why he's telling them, can't you judge in the simplest of matters? Can't you judge in the simplest of matters? Now, 
Our judgments are not prejudicial. In fact, before that in chapter 5, he was talking about how you judge the sexually immoral, uh, the persons who, who are filthy in their ways and all the like, to put away evil from among the believers. This idea that we can't judge anybody, meaning we don't have a view to correcting things, we don't have an, uh, an authority to do that, that's what's led to this powerless, convictionless church that's blown about by every wind of doctrine. No, you're supposed to judge in matters, but there's a process, there's a process by which we judge things. Therefore, judgment is not privatized. For example, the process in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, you don't ignore his sin and harbor resentment in your heart and use religious language to excuse the fact that you're not going to seek your brother. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault just between the two of you. If he repents, you've gained your brother. That's the first level of judgment. If he doesn't repent, take two or three witnesses and conduct an investigation, which is to say, let, every, let the facts be established. Let objective hearers of the facts determine, objective hearers of the narrative, determine what the facts are, so that they could call the offender to repentance, because this is the process by which you gain a brother. If he refuses the admonition and entreatment of the two or three witnesses who have judged the matter, then you tell it to the church, tell it to the whole body of believers to whom he's connected in the intent or with the intent of drawing him back to uh, his, his place that he's about to lose. And if he refuses to listen to the church, then hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. None of these things are authorized if you can't judge. You see? You're called to judge men and angels, but your judgment has to be from the position of being seated in Christ, which is you clothe yourself with the authority of Christ. Therefore, you are representing Christ when you face the enemies of God and man. That's how the process of judging angels begins. Now I want to show you uh, some more about judging angels. You have certain authorities that you may employ against even the angelic. Let me show you though in, broad, in broader strokes, the authority of the believer to judge. This is, in, this is from Ephesians chapter 1, about verse 17. Paul is writing to the Ephesians and he says that he prays to the Father of glory that the Father may give the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ 
that the eyes of the Ephesians, and by extension ourselves, that our eyes may be, that the eyes of our understanding may be enlightened, that we may know the hope. We know three things. Number one, the hope of his calling. Number two, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? That is, the riches of God's glory, of uh, the riches of the glory of God's inheritance in the saints. And number three, what is what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? Which power is demonstrated according to the working of his mighty strength, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above, listen to this, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this present age, but in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave Christ to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What is the scope of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ? All authority in heaven and on earth. Who is subject to that authority? That authority places him far above far above, that's a reference to a superior position by orders of magnitude, not even close, far above all principality, power, might, dominion. Now if you skip over in your mind to the same book of Ephesians chapter 6, when he's summarizing this, how does he identify principalities, powers, and dominion. He calls them the rulers of the darkness of this world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And he says, therefore, take to yourselves the, the armor of God to operate in the mighty strength of God concerning the demonic. That's why I maintain to you that we have the authority to judge them in this present world. That authority was given to Christ, we are seated in Christ and we have the authority to judge them and God will enforce our judgments by giving angels uh, the, the, the charge to come and obey us when we order certain sanctions against the demonic that has taken advantage of the people of God and held up their blessings, separated them from their true identity and otherwise alienated them from God. For if they're allowed to do that, then they're allowed to frustrate what Christ accomplished at the cross. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet 
Now the soon there is not a reference to the future or to the millennial period or the hereafter. The soon has reference to as soon as you are ready. As soon as you become mature in this present world. Now I understand people who don't even believe they're demons today, let alone that they occupy the emotions of people's souls, who have no understanding as to how to deal with them and who are altogether too ready and willing to put the blame on the victims will say, we don't believe that. Well then continue to enjoy your demonic oppression because it's by unbelief in what is true that you hand yourself over to the torment of the evil one and all you've got left is to try to work up enough soulish resistance to the enemy to try and stumble through life, hope to make it until you die and when you die then you get to go to heaven and, and, and uh, avoid it all. That's rubbish. That's powerless theology that works a harm upon both the perpetrators of, this, of this, these notions and more damagingly on the people who are supposed to be under their care. I'm amazed that there's so many shepherds who would be willing to allow the people to continue to suffer time and time again under the relentless assault of the enemy but refuse to acknowledge that the enemy has been overthrown at the cross and we get to prosecute the case against them and to evict them with certain sanctions that render them absolutely powerless. I know of of preachers, prominent preachers, whose kids waged a war against Satan in the flesh, in their soulish strength and lost, committed suicide. And to listen to the pathetic excuses of their preaching fathers after that was the consummate tragedy. No one, no one should have to die because they didn't know the truth. That's irresponsibility at the highest level. That's virtually criminal malpractice. We are allowed to judge angels and there's a formality that allows us to convene God's court. We are not lacking in any measure of authority to bring the enemy that has infringed upon our authority to bring him into the courts of the Lord. When he commits an infraction, he can be brought into God's courts of justice. That enemy puts himself under the jurisdiction of God's authority when he infringes upon our sovereignty 
that God gave us. That's kingdom against kingdom. Now, it's a mistake to think that certain categories of demonic princes are involved with us. I am routinely amused to hear people talk about their personal struggle with Satan. Now, there's only one reference, one, one circumstantial, a couple of circumstantial references, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, of Satan being a prime actor in anyone's life. One was with Job in the Old Testament, and the other was in first Peter and then Judas. But the activities in that environment involved Jesus. So the enemy threw out his biggest gun and came as himself. But other than that, the things we deal with as normal sons of God never implicate this category of the, of fallen, of the fallen angelic. Some of those who were thrown out have been allowed positions to control entire countries or continents or great cities. So the prince of Persia, a mighty warring prince, that prince would not show up as controlling some individual. That prince's task was to control the whole region. Prince of Greece, same thing. Princes who have operated over uh, desperate empires like the Mayans that sacrificed children. Those are not demonic spirits that uh, take control of persons. They, they control areas, but their downline operatives are the ones who take advantage as we've seen. Once they come <clears throat> into our spheres, the sphere, the sphere where we have authority, once they, once they enter our spheres of authority, we have jurisdiction over them. Once they present themselves in our sphere, once they begin to do things in our sphere, they make themselves subject to our jurisdiction. That's why the larger operators are not subject to our personal jurisdictions. And the individual doesn't have jurisdiction over mighty princes. It doesn't mean we're less than they, it just means we can't judge them yet. So we should be careful only about, only as it regards defining the scope of our authority. But when, you, when a demon has pre presented himself into the realm of someone we know, someone we love, someone over whom we have authority, they are subject to, to judgments. Uh, this, I will, have to con I will have to extend this over a couple of, this teaching over a couple more sessions, or at least one more session, because I want to show you certain things. 
First, I wanted to show you our authority in Christ from Ephesians 1. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that authority includes judging angels and that the judgment of of angels and the exercise of of authority over principalities, uh, powers, dominions and the like is in this age because the authority of Christ is in this age as well. And our engagement of the demonic is from our position in Christ according to all that has been said up to and including 1 Corinthians 6 that speaks of the armor of God. In 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 14, scriptures speak of how angels that sinned were cast down to the abyss. Now in the Greek, the term for the abyss there is Tartarus. To distinguish it from Gehenna or Hades, which, and it usually is viewed as the bottomless pit, the realm below. Uh, not, that, not that we ought to see this from a geographical, hierarchical structure, but we ought to see it from a position of authority. So the realm below Tartarus is below in in, uh, the place of desperation, below either the reference to Hades or the reference to Gehenna, which are the places of entrapment or the places of judgment, places of containment for human beings, the souls of humans who have sinned. But below that, like like the heavens have higher orders of the heavens, The lowest of the heavens is the heavens of human beings. The middle heavens, if you like, is the place of the operation of the demonic. And the third heavens is the location of the throne of God. So to those who are restrained, awaiting judgments, the the primary order of that is Gehenna or Hades. The order below that is Tartarus. And in that sense, there is no hope in it, so it's bottomless. They're demons that are trapped, they're angels that sinned, that are trapped in that bottomless pit. And that bottomless pit, when when the aspect of the pit is referred to as hopeless or bottomless, it's referred to as the abyss, abusos, or the abyss certain angels, the the, the name of the abyss is Tartarus. An abyss is a location, the name of the location is Tartarus. Now, I want to proceed in the next, I'll begin the next teaching by just showing you uh, that the demons themselves are aware of being subject to the abyss. We know of certain angels that have been restrained on the earth, four great angels by the river Euphrates, but they're held for a certain time and for certain services or certain tasks that they are to perform. I'll continue with this discussion then in the next next segment and close up this teaching.